0: You see nothing on earth is dependable. If your hope is in earthly things, your hopes will be dashed. But don't fret. For those of us who trust in Christ, we have a guaranteed hope. Our hope is in what God has done for us and what he has waiting for us. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings everyone, and thanks for joining me in the Fox Den. We all want security and happiness, but we live in a world of uncertainty. Some of us are creeping into our retirement age and wondering if we're going to have enough money when we're no longer able to work. Many people are living with anxiety, wondering what will happen. Your case may not be the same as I've mentioned, but all of us live in some uncertainty. And this begs the question, where is your hope? Many people are investing money and working for retirement so they have finances in their old age. And this is a good thing. It's a wise thing to do. But we've seen that even our best efforts on earth can come up empty. Your IRA can tank, and you can lose all your money that you've set aside for retirement. Identity theft is rampant, and if this were to happen to you, it would create all kinds of problems. Your health can decline rapidly, and even death can come at a moment's notice. Our security is limited. You can easily lose all that you've worked for in a short amount of time. So where's your hope? Do you hope in your retirement? Do you hope in the government? Do you hope in your medical and dental plan? Do you hope in your investments? Do you hope in your health? Do you hope in your good looks? All will perish. All will fade away. Now this isn't a threat. This is a guarantee. So again, where is your hope? You see, nothing on earth is dependable. If your hope is in earthly things, your hopes will be dashed. But don't fret. For those of us who trust in Christ, we have a guaranteed hope. Our hope is in what God has done for us and what he has waiting for us. Now today we're going to take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3-9. through 9. But let me begin just by giving you some background information. Peter wrote this letter to first century Christians throughout Asia Minor, and they endured struggles of many kinds. Peter doesn't identify any particular suffering, but it's clear that many Christians were suffering, and history shows that during this time, many Christians were persecuted simply because they were Christians. In fact, Emperor Nero used Christians as a scapegoat concerning the fires in Rome because the Christians were a hated class of people. However, though we can be fairly certain Peter was addressing persecuted Christians in his letter, surely he had in mind the full range of suffering Christians endure on this earth. He speaks of various trials. You see, they suffered in a sinful world. And what this really means is that Peter's letter speaks to all of us and our situations. So how does Peter address the suffering Christians? Well, he reminds them who they are. You see, in his greeting, he identifies them as elect exiles. These are people scattered throughout Asia Minor that God chose to be his people. They are elect exiles, chosen exiles. Now, we have to be careful not to apply the American mindset of choosing and electing. In the United States, when we think of choosing people, we tend to think of the best person or most qualified person for the job. Think about playground sports. When it was time to divvy up the teams, what did we do? Two people were the team captains, and then they took turns picking their teammates. And obviously, the best players went first. Or think of competing for a job. Who usually gets the job? One is picked over another, usually based on something in the applicant. He has a better education, has more experience. Whatever it is, one person is deemed more qualified for a position. Therefore, they're chosen to fill that role. There's something about the person that makes the interviewer choose him. Or think of a political office, who gets elected? The person whom the people think is most qualified. So our tendency as Americans is to think that there is something qualitatively appealing about the elect of God, as if God chose someone because they're better or worth more than the others, and so therefore he chose them. But if you'll notice, according to verse 3, the only qualifier for God to elect his people Is his mercy. God had mercy on us and chose to rescue us. There was nothing in us that moved God to save us. So, what did God do according to his mercy? Well, he gave new birth to the Christian. The New International Version says that he has given us new birth. However, the English Standard Version and the New American Standard better capture the main idea. They say that God has caused us to be born again. You see God is the one who gave us new birth. He made us alive again. It's what we call regeneration. And Paul speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. And you can listen to episode 5 where I discuss that passage. So a person is a Christian not because they made a decision for Jesus, but because God gave them new birth and he did this because of his mercy. Now, Jesus had talked to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 about this new birth, and he called it being born again. We were spiritually dead, but God made us spiritually alive. And again, this term is regeneration, or to make alive again. And the word in the original language means having birthed again. Now, look at verse 3. Do you see any other qualifier there concerning our new birth? No, there's nothing in us that moved God to make us alive again and to birth us again. Peter says that according to the mercy of God, he caused us to be made alive again. Now, notice what Peter is not saying here. He's not saying God provided a way if you just believe. He's really saying that you were dead, but God caused you to be born again or to be made alive again. And I hope you catch this. You had nothing to do with it. You were dead, and God made you alive. It's all by God's initiative, a point that John stresses in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. And there John says that we have the right to become the children of God, not by man's will, but by God. You see, God did the work. Now, Peter tells us a little bit more about this new birth, and there are two aspects here that we need to see. And the first is, we were born into a living hope. This isn't a false hope that will diminish. It's not a hope in anything earthly, anything that is temporal or fading. It's also not a hope that may or may not happen, like, I hope I win a million dollars. No, this is a guarantee. This hope is alive and well. You can't see it, you can't touch it, but it's there, and it will certainly come to fruition. And how were we born into this living hope? We were born into this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus conquered sin and death by his perfect life, sacrificial death, and resurrection. His resurrection is confirmation that he conquered sin and death. And just as Jesus rose from the dead, you too will rise from the dead. At his second coming, those in Christ will rise from the dead and enter into eternal glory with him. This leads us into the second aspect of this new life we have according to the mercy of God. We were born into an inheritance which is waiting for us. Inheritance here is a possession that someone else obtained or earned. We don't deserve this inheritance. We only receive it when someone passes it on to us. And the inheritance that Peter is talking about is ours based solely on our association with Christ. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We receive it because it is handed down to us by God in Christ. We are united to him by faith, and God secured an inheritance for us. And Peter describes this inheritance for us. It's not going to rot, it's undefiled by sin, and it's permanent. Now, relate this to your earthly retirement, your investment plan, and even the inheritance that you have coming from a family member. All of that will rot or one day will be consumed. It's not permanent, it may last a lifetime. But you can't take it with you when you die. It's temporal. It's earthly. Not so with the inheritance that is kept for you in heaven. But notice verse 5. It's not only an inheritance that is being kept in heaven for you. You who are in Christ are being guarded for the salvation to be revealed in the last days. Christ is going to return and you will rise from the dead. You will enter into eternal glory with glorified bodies, bodies that will never suffer, sin, or die. That's the great salvation, the time when we will fully receive the inheritance waiting for us in heaven. And how are we being guarded? By God's power through faith. Your faith, which is you depending on Christ for your salvation, is the security to the inheritance waiting for you. We tend to get this wrong here. We tend to think that Our security is based on our obedience. If I'm obedient to God, then he is going to give me the inheritance. But that's not what Peter said. He said that we are being guarded by God's power through faith, not obedience. And this faith that God requires is a gift from him. You didn't muster up this faith on your own. You didn't come to faith based on your own cognition and mental ability. God worked it in you. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, you will see that faith is a gift. So why has Peter shared all of this with his readers? Well, Peter understands that this is the very thing that will keep them going when their earthly life is filled with suffering and sorrow. Look at what he says in verse 6. He tells them to rejoice. The this points back to verses 3 through 5. We rejoice in what God has done and what he has waiting for us. And Peter continues by saying, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Remembering what God has done and what he has for us is our encouragement in all times, but especially in various trials. When there's a change in your employment and you don't know how you're going to pay the medical bills, or when you're discriminated against because you're a Christian, or when you hear that your health is withering because of illness, and you're not sure what lies ahead. Hope in what God has made possible in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I get it. This hope doesn't pay the bills. This hope doesn't heal your body. In fact, you, you may even go hungry. You may even die of the illness. You may have no way of paying the medical expenses when your kids get sick. Peter recognizes the struggles that people faced and many of them suffered far greater than anything that we will ever experience. It was not uncommon in those days for people to be tortured and killed because they were Christians. Yet where does Peter point them? He doesn't tell them that things are going to get better on earth. He points them to what God has done and what God has waiting for them when they die. He points them to their hope which comes through the resurrection of Christ. And there's a reason for these trials. God brings trials so that the tested authenticity of your faith may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus returns. What does he mean by this? True believers will persevere in the midst of various trials. That doesn't mean they're going to do this perfectly, but they will persevere in the midst of various trials. You see, God shapes us into his people through the suffering and trials of life. He doesn't send suffering our way because he likes to see a squirm, nor does he direct suffering and trials as judgment on believers, and he also doesn't allow trials to come your way because he's incompetent and not in control. God is far more intentional. He sends suffering our way because he's refining our faith. Have you ever taken your children into a doctor's appointment and it was painful for your child? Whatever it may have been. Maybe it's taking them to the dentist where the dentist had to give them a shot in order to fill a cavity. None of us like to see pain inflicted on our children. But for their good, they have to suffer some pain in order to fix the problem. Again, God doesn't send suffering our way because he likes to see us hurt. For whatever reason, God is doing what is best for us, even in the midst of suffering. He's refining us. He's crafting us into his children, and in those times that we suffer, he's causing us to look to him, depend on him, call out to him, love him. God is intentional, even in the suffering. So what do we do with all this? Well, first, we must remember what God has done and what he has waiting for us because it enables us to endure suffering. In other words, it reminds us that our suffering on earth is temporal. And God has something unimaginable for us on the other side of death. Your problems and suffering will go away, and your suffering will not last forever. Yeah, it may be five months, it may be five years, it may be five decades, but it will go away. Our inheritance in Christ, on the other hand, will last forever. You see, to those of us in Christ, there is actually a marvelous end in sight, entry into the glorious kingdom of Christ. It's so easy to get caught up in the troubles of this life, to focus on the temporal issues of earth. Perhaps you have conflict with your marriage or family relationships. Perhaps you're having a hard time paying bills. Perhaps you suffer emotionally from past trauma. Or maybe you suffer physical pain from an injury or old age, reminding you that your body is falling apart. But never lose sight that this suffering is temporal it will come to an end. And when Christ returns, we too will rise from the dead and enter into our eternal rest with Christ. And that is the inheritance waiting for us. And in our glorified bodies, we will never sin, suffer, or die. That's our inheritance. We must also remember what God has done and has waiting for us because it motivates us to love God with our lives. Perhaps Paul can shed some light on this for us. Take a look at Romans chapter 5, verse 10. There he tells us that while we were his enemies, God reconciled us to himself by the death of Christ. And now that we are reconciled with him, we will be saved because of his resurrection. We were enemies of God, dead in our sins, loving the devil. We deserved God's eternal wrath and punishment, but instead of judgment, He extended to us his mercy. While we were dead, while we were his enemies, through the death and resurrection of Christ, we were born again, made alive with Christ. By God's grace and mercy, we are reconciled to God through Christ. Now we are his people. God took his enemies and made them his children, not because we asked him to do so. When we hated him, he made us his children. God did this, and this is very important, because recognizing that we are God's people by his grace and mercy motivates us to love God with our whole lives. God has been so very good to us. He extended his grace to us, giving us what we didn't deserve, and quite frankly, not giving us what we do deserve. God didn't do this because he couldn't live without us. Quite frankly, he could live without us. God extended you his marvelous grace and mercy, making you spiritually alive with Christ simply because it pleased him to do so. It's true that we will encounter suffering in this life. It's inescapable. We live in a sinful world, but that doesn't mean that God has failed us or that he loves us less. According to his mercy, God made us alive through the resurrection of Christ and he has an inheritance waiting for us. When we remember that, We should be empowered to endure our suffering on earth. And when we remember that, we should be filled with love and gratitude toward our great God. You will have security and you will have happiness when Christ returns because God redeemed you in Christ by his grace and mercy. And he has given you new life because it pleased him to do so.